This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. It's hard to look at the world today and feel positive, but comedy can help. Not only because it helps to alleviate hateful views and tensions, but also because it forces us to reflect on the world we've shaped and how we can make it better, more inclusive and equal. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Kirsty Wiebeck, a rising Australian comedian, performer and vocal spokesperson for the LGBTQI community, who says that being thrown in the deep end was the reason she's where she is today. Kirsty, thank you very much for joining us here today. I wanted to ask, did you always want to do comedy? I did, in a very strange beneath the surface kind of way where I think the idea was actually planted in my head by other people who just throughout my childhood and my teen years were always telling me I should do comedy and I was always like yeah 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 I should do comedy but it wasn't until I was sort of in my late 20s that I was like hey yeah I should do comedy So, yeah, I I did. I did. It was just bubbling away deep within the recesses of my mind somewhere. So what was the light bulb moment then? You know, you say you get to your late 20s and suddenly what everyone's been saying to you resonates. But what had changed to make it, you know, really resonate? It's the most cliche of stories, but I came out of a suboptimal relationship and I literally woke up one morning and when things have to change... I'm going to be a comedian. And it just popped into my head. It it hadn't been something that I'd been thinking of. I hadn't been looking into it. I was just like, I've got to turn my life around. I've got to do what I what I think I'll love to do and I've got to be a comedian. Isn't that great? The upside <laughs> of the suboptimal relationship, Kirsty, coming through there. Um, who are or who were at that point your comedy heroes? Oddly enough, I, I didn't really have any. I wasn't one of those comedians who spent all of their free time when they were growing up watching comedy. I'd I'd barely even watched any stand-up comedy when I decided that that was my calling, which is a very strange thing to say. (laughs) I guess it means you went in fresh. I did go in fresh. It just feels like a very bizarre thing to be so adamant that a certain profession is your calling when you barely know anything about it or you've barely been exposed to it. So it, it's it is it's odd. <laughs> and so where do you find your comedy inspiration? I mean, are you, are you looking at day-to-day? Where does it come from? It usually is day-to-day. I, like a lot of comedians, I have this amazing ability to lie down at night ready for sleep and to start dozing off and then to suddenly be like, whoa, yeah, that would be so funny. It would be so cool if that thing happened and and this is a cool tangent that I'd say on stage and then I'm leaning over the bedside table trying to shield my partner from the light of my phone, rapidly writing down notes and it's in the still moments and the moments when I'm going for long walks where these ideas pop into my head and often I'm not thinking about anything. If I am, it's usually that I'm thinking about something that's happened or something that I've observed. But it's very much just from having a look around and, and just thinking thinking about what's absurd, really. 
Mm. You know, you sound to me as though you're describing your creative process. You know, you talk about, you know, I'm there late at night and your mind is calm, you know, and that's when the idea comes for you, comes to you. Is Do you see that? Do you see that as your creative process? Do you lean into it? I do. I do. It took me some time to realise that. I went through long periods when when I stopped working other jobs and when I was, you know, taking the plunge to do comedy full-time where I'd, I'd be like, right, I'm going to treat it like an office job and I'm going to sit down at my desk and I'm going to have lunch from 12 till 12.30 and I'm going to do a solid seven and a half hours of writing and then I'd sit there for 45 minutes sort of just tapping my fingers on the desk, staring out the window and I'd be like, you know what, nope. I can't, I can't sit down and make myself write seven and a half hours worth of comedy. Like it's, it's, it's got to come out when it's going to come out. And, and that's very much how I write now when the ideas hit me, whenever it is, wherever it is, out comes the notes in the phone. And, and I know that that's, that's what needs to be done in that moment. So you said there, um, you know, talking about when you stopped working other jobs, you know, and you sit down and decide comedy is going to be your profession. So, so what, what was your profession prior to comedy and how scary or not was that moment when you decided to take the plunge, if you like? Yeah, sure. Well, I had a million jobs in my twenties and I didn't have a really clear career trajectory, but the last job that I had was working in the government and I I fell into the job when I moved back from six years overseas and essentially I couldn't get a job. I got this job and then I ended up staying with the government for a few years and that was the job that I left to do stand-up. And I knew it was time to leave that job uh, for, for a multitude of reasons, but I was at a point where I had a fair bit of comedy work coming through, not quite enough to sustain me, but I knew that if I wasn't focusing on something else for 38 hours a week, that the tipping point would come with comedy. And it did. I ended up working casually on and off for a few years as well. Uh, just, you know, a few hours here and there during the weekend. That was mostly because I was incredibly bored waiting around all day to do a gig at night. But it wasn't scary because I knew that I was heading up to a tipping point with comedy. So I was like, I either take the plunge and go all in and and make comedy my my number one priority or I, I keep ambling along with it competing with other, you know, other commitments like having a full-time job. So it, it was very practical and, and I'm very practically minded. So I was like, you, if you want to be a comedian, this is what you've got to do. Now do it. Go and hand in that resignation. Yeah. Look, um, and and you've, been, you've been very successful and it's really great to talk to you here today about this. Uh, but what do you say to other aspiring comics that apart from that, like what's the secret of your success if you like? I think finding my people early on was definitely an element of it. So finding people within the comedy community who became fast friends of mine and who I also looked up to professionally, uh, that, that had a lot to do with some of the chances that I was given early on. And very much networking with people and 
I treated comedy as though it were my career from the very first gig I ever did. And I continued to do that the whole way along. So I I made it a priority to stay out of gossip. Uh, I, I associated with people who were very focused on their careers and becoming better comedians as opposed to what other comedians were up to. I looked for opportunities. I reached out to people. I reached out to organisations. I formed relationships with media outlets. Uh, you know, when I went and, and performed at a corporate event, I'd, I'd make sure that I, I stuck around and chatted to some people and got to know some people and made contacts. And I think treating it like a business and treating fellow comedians like my colleagues from the get-go was probably the most solid foundation for my career that I laid. One thing you said that sort of piqued my interest, is it a very gossipy profession? I mean, as you said, I stayed out of gossip, you know, and stayed very focused on what I was doing rather than what others were doing. I don't know that it's any more gossipy than any other environment. It's I mean, it's very hard to quantify, isn't it, how, how gossipy places are. But it, it's a strange environment to work in because a lot of the time it doesn't feel like a workplace and I think it can be really easy to not treat it like a workplace and maybe because there's not really a boss as well. <laughs> you know, nobody's really accountable for their actions or you know, for what they're saying about other people. So I, maybe that amplifies it sometimes. I don't actually think it is necessarily any worse than any other industry, but it's it's probably those things. I mean, we're performing in pubs and, you know, where people are drinking and we're sitting in green rooms with other comedians and there's no outside of just societal norms telling you to be a decent human being. There's not really uh, – there's no HR department. I'm trying to imagine that HR department for comics, uh, that uh, poor HR person. Um, <laughs> one thing I wanted to talk about is around just around funding models for the arts and, and comedy and just the arts generally in the current environment. Um, is the government doing enough and what do you see as the future for the arts coming coming through this? I don't think that the government is doing enough I know when the industry collapsed, for want of a better term, at the very beginning of the the COVID pandemic situation, I know that pretty much the only funding available to people in the arts for, for quite a lengthy period of time was in the form of various grants that were being given out by different organisations. And I know even even through those uh, channels, I know that a, a lot of comedians were overlooked across the board by uh, arts funding organisations. But that was the Band-Aid solution very early on for a lot of people. Uh, I know a lot of my friends and colleagues are now on, on Job Seeker or Job Keeper, but I, the lines were very blurry for quite some time, even on the eligibility for comedians within, you know, within those two different welfare programs. And moving forward, it's, it's a really tough one. I mean, I'm not, I'm not great at predicting the, the future at the best of times, but it's, it's going to take a long time for stand up comedy itself to come back. 
I, I was reading a research report the other day and they'd interviewed, it was only a small sample size, I think they'd interviewed around 2,000 people and they were talking about what they'd be comfortable participating in moving forward. And so these were people that are frequent entertainment um, attendees and at the absolute bottom of the list was people feeling comfortable attending a stand-up comedy room. So there was just a fraction of participants that said that any time in the near future they would be happy to sit in a stand-up comedy room. And that's not a shock. That's not a surprise to me at all. They are very intimate environments and and we need them to be intimate in order for stand-up comedy to work and for the show to work. So I I think we're going to be putting on a fair bit of digital comedy for quite some time. I don't know what that's going to look like. And what's it meant for you in terms of work? I've been fortunate in that I had some pre-existing contacts uh, through corporate work that I'd done in the past who reached out and wanted to support me and also support their staff in in their organisation. So I've done a range of things from hosting office drinks sort of uh, situations through to being involved in corporate Zoom comedy through to making little weekly pep talk videos with funny stories in them uh, for organisations to distribute to their staff just to, you know, keep them smiling and laughing. And I have a podcast and I've got a Patreon attached to that, which is just, you know, it's something that I, I plugged a little bit at the beginning of the the pandemic. And I don't have a, a massive amount of supporters on my Patreon as a result of, of keeping it fairly low key, but it, it's certainly a very helpful boost um, each month when your entire touring year has just, uh, you know, been been decimated. You mentioned a Patreon there. Can you just explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah, so Patreon's basically a platform where you can set how much people can participate. So, for example, you have tiers set up and you can ask your your supporters or your fan base or whatever, you can ask them to support you with uh, like $3, $5 or $10 a month, for example. And people who are supporting you for $3 a month, you list what rewards they would be given in exchange for that $3. And so the tiers obviously work in a way that the people that are paying more each month are receiving more of whatever it is that you're offering or or that you're creating. So a lot of podcasters use it and they put bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes information and those kinds of things up as rewards or, or videos, whereas, you know, the podcast would obviously ordinarily be in audio format. So... It's it's a good way to keep producing content for your fans and to yeah be putting a product out there so so they're paying for that product. One thing I wanted to ask you about um, is just the in, the sort of the, the gender environment in comedy because I started off thinking that comedy still is I think a bit of a male environment and traditionally always has been a male environment. Do you, has that changed? Is there more diversity now in comedy? Yes and no. I. I think that there is more diversity in comedy now and that can be exemplified by how many alternative 
comedy nights are available across the country and are sustained. So there's a bunch of comedy rooms in Melbourne that run based on uh, queer people, for example. So they're, they're marketed to the queer community and the, the performers are LGBTIQA plus and or allies. And then there's also comedy shows that are run completely with women and non-binary people on the lineup. So th- there are a lot more comedians out there performing now that aren't male or aren't men. However, there still is sometimes an issue on lineups where I will arrive and I'll be the only woman on a lineup. Now, the interesting thing is that the scene is very aware of it. Room runners are very aware of it. And I think that the scene, I'll only speak for Melbourne because that's where I live, and I think the scene here is aware enough and there's enough pushback on, on all male lineups and it's at the forefront of room runners' minds enough that I think it is starting to move in the right direction. Now, the biggest argument in probably in the arts in general but in stand-up is often giving people an opportunity to elevate to that next level So I think sometimes the issue is that there's a lack of support for comedians who might be just a step or two below where they need to be to be performing in X venue, like whatever the venue is that runs a professional night and that charges people for tickets. In in my mind, that's the biggest gap in stand-up in Melbourne at the moment is is finding a way to elevate the, the comedians that have come up in the rooms to a certain level but now just need a little boost up to be able to start performing in those other rooms. And what do you see happening around that? I mean, if you if you relate that back to the conversations around gender and female leadership broadly, so if I think about corporate Australia, for example, a similar issue, you know, lots of women coming in at the bottom, but not enough at the top. Uh, how do you get them up? A lot of it's been around mentorship, around um, sponsorship, you know, people specifically leaning down and saying, you know, I'm going to sponsor this young person, this woman, you know, up into the next step. Are, are those similar kind of conversations had in the comedy scene? The conversations, not so much. I mean, some of my friends and I have discussed this, but it's not it's not a widespread conversation throughout the industry. I don't think. I don't. I don't know that it's openly acknowledged as being a massive hurdle, rather than something that just my mates and I have sort of talked about. It. It, it definitely is the biggest barrier because on one hand I understand when when people are booking lineups and they're like, well, this show, uh, the, the tickets are this amount of money and all of the people on the lineup are professional touring comedians that, you know, ha- have these solid sets and whatever. So I, I can't just throw somebody on that doesn't have jokes that are, that are up to the level that they need to be. So I, I understand that perspective but – for me, somebody threw me in the deep end by very kindly offering me a spot on a gala when I I barely had any jokes and I definitely was not at a level where I should be performing at a gala for 700 people. However, I went along, I did it, I rose to the occasion as much as I could but I learnt so much from that five minutes that 
from that day forward, I was a different comedian and I was working differently and my jokes were getting better rapidly. And without that opportunity and somebody taking that chance on me, I probably wouldn't be a professional comedian today. So it's definitely a conversation that is worth having in a, in a broader sense across the industry. Like how, how do we help people move from doing open mic rooms up to being able to do a gala or, or not even just to be able to work a professional room? Kirsty, we are living in really interesting times um, and, you know, I've often thought that comedy is a really incisive way to comment on social and political issues. It, it, bearing in mind the current environment, what's the role for comedy and, and comedians as, as, as commentators as you see happening more and more, particularly in the States? I think, I think the role for comedians has always been a, a truly great one uh, because we all know that you can really dig deep and, and, and talk about the really tough issues in a way that people will receive it through the use of humour. So it, it's always just a softener of, of delivering messages. Well, not always, but, yeah, it absolutely can be used as a tool to soften messages to get people to listen who wouldn't ordinarily listen. So it's probably – comedy's probably never been more important than it is at the moment. And you're right in the respect of – providing social commentary in in a way that it will potentially reach more people than just a hard-hitting message would, but also in an entirely opposite way in in giving people an escape. So there's there's always those two ends of the spectrum with comedy where, yeah, it's, it's a really important time to be able to use it to, yeah, to commentate on what's happening in the world and, like you said, particularly in the U.S., uh, but yeah, to be able to provide people with, uh, you know, a little bit of humor and, and a way to get away from it all as well. So yeah, th- comedy is really, really important. I'm not the kind of comedian that comes out with hard hitting statements, uh, presented through jest. It's, it's not my brand. Maybe it will be one day. Maybe I just lack the skills to do it now. Uh, but. I'm envious of people that can use it uh, to, to, you know, to harness the power of, yeah, commentary and and maybe being able to change hearts and minds, uh, yeah, through softening the messages. So, yeah, I think I think comedy has a very important role always. But, yeah, in these trying times, it absolutely needs to be harnessed. Uh, Kirsty, you are um, you know, obviously a, a female comic. You know, I'm, I'm one of the leading female comics here in Australia. In terms of what you see happening around the world, what do you think about female lead- leadership and what the opportunities are for female leadership, be it in comedy, be it in politics, um, be, it in, um, be it in corporate life? I think it's our time. I, I have this overwhelming feeling that I've had for probably at least the last year where I just really feel like there's a groundswell and like it is definitely our time to come through the ranks and to to take the positions of leadership. I get a lot of inquiries from corporations with regard to doing keynote speeches or workshops for women 
about building confidence and looking for ways to progress through the ranks. And I find that incredibly spiriting and interesting that actual organisations are starting to place an emphasis on how to develop the women within their teams and that they're willing to put money behind it as well. And that's just that's just a tiny example of the many reasons why I've got this overwhelming feeling of hope that that this is our time and that we we need to we need to seize it and we need to you know we need to take it as far as we possibly can and just continue encouraging each other and boosting each other up and and taking those spots, you know? What do you what do you see as critical in the next few years, in this decade, how do you, I mean, it's hard to throw out there, but what do you think is going to change coming out of this? I, I hope that it's made people stop and realise what's important. And I hope that it motivates and propels people to move towards things that they would truly love to do or things that they have been thinking about doing for a really long time but haven't. And I really just hope that it, it gives people this this mentality to seize the day because you know we've been on such a standstill and everything's been so up in the air for the whole of this year really and you know everything's just been touch and go so i i genuinely hope that it just motivates people to be be the best that they can be at whatever it is that they want to be thank you for joining me for the leadership lessons the female perspective you need for the decade ahead This episode was produced by Lisa Gebelagin. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a rating. Find out more from us at womensagenda.com.au. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.